Fads come and go, and nowhere more than in the world of weight loss. That's why Noom's weight management programs are made to last. Noom uses science and personalization to help you manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. You're listening to This Week in Fantasy Baseball. Hello, everyone, and welcome to This Week in Fantasy Baseball. I'm Lee Keller, joined by John Kuh. On today's show, we'll cover all of the news around baseball, highlight some player performances, recommend some pitching streamers, and later on, we'll be joined by pitcherless writer John Foley to talk about his article, What's Wrong with Emmanuel Classe? But before we get into today's show, John, how's everything going with you? Anything exciting happening this last week? Uh, Royce Lewis is the exciting thing happening in my Yeah. Opinion. Uh, yeah, it feels it feels good. I mean, I, I don't want to overblow things too much, but um, yeah, we needed that offense just a little bit, and he is the real deal, and I am loving it. Um, it's always nice to see when you know you got uh, your your high top draft picks come up and they instantly contribute. But it's also just a great story for Lewis, obviously going through two um, ACL tears and then coming up to the majors, and he is just absolutely mashing. It's so much fun. Yeah, it's definitely exciting to watch him. And I told everyone last week, I'm going to talk about him a little bit later, but I told everyone last week, if he's out there, stash him away because he's exciting. He's a difference maker. I think he can really be an asset for people in fantasy this season. So it's exciting to see him come up. My Mets are winning games, which is exciting. I'm happy about that. Things are going well for us, at least. We're trying to pick up the pieces here because we had a a little bit of a slow start, but now our pitching is doing a little bit better. Scherzer's healthy. Verlander's healthy. So hopefully the Mets can get things rolling. The Twins, I mean, dude, as I write the MLB news every week, I just feel like I just keep adding Twins players to it. It's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, it was like two weeks ago, like our, our team got decimated. And then it's like, oh, everyone's back. We're healthy. And then immediately... um Correa, Buxton, and Max Kepler all are now dealing with some injury issues. Yeah, it's pretty wild. And we also have, which I'll get to in a minute, a guy who landed on the IL who we were just crossing our fingers this season wouldn't happen. But unfortunately, he ended up there anyway. But before we get into the news, I'd like to remind all of you that you can follow our podcast on Twitter at ThisWeekPL. And you could send us your fantasy baseball questions to our email at ThisWeekPLPod at gmail.com. Lastly, make sure that you subscribe to or follow the podcast on whatever streaming platform that you listen to your podcasts on, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, we are on all of them, so make sure that you subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star review. If you enjoy listening to us, we would greatly appreciate it. But let's get into the MLB news since the last podcast. We start with, unfortunately, Chris Bryant of the Rockies who, just in the notes for anyone who's listening, I put a little sad emoji because it's just sad. We don't like to see Chris Bryant hurt after last season where we talked about him pretty much every week in the MLB news section. He was placed on the 10-day IL retroactive to May 31st with a left heel bruise. He fouled the ball off of his heel in Tuesday's game and it resulted in him needing to be placed on the IL. 
Obviously, it's not a serious injury. It's something that happened off of a foul ball, so it's not too bad, and he should be back soon. But still, we were hoping that Bryant could just have some good luck this season and not land on the IL, but hopefully he'll be back soon. Cedric Mullins of the Orioles was placed on the 10-day IL on Tuesday, May 30th with a right groin strain. He sustained the injury while running out an infield grounder in the 8th inning of Monday's game. There's no official timetable for Mullins' return at the moment. Manny Machado of the Padres was reinstated from the 10-day IL, started at third base, and batted fourth on Friday against the Cubs. He missed over two weeks with a fracture in his left hand. I still think it's remarkable that the last time he was on the IL was 2014, so nine years between IL stints is pretty remarkable. So welcome back, Manny Machado. Chris Sale of the Red Sox was removed from Thursday's start against the Reds with left shoulder soreness. He was officially placed on the 15-day IL on Friday with left shoulder inflammation. Red Sox manager Alex Cora confirmed the news of the IL stint on NESN's pre-game coverage while expressing hope that it's only a minor issue. He will miss at least one start, but you definitely don't want to see this, right, John? I mean, Chris Sale was just starting to roll and be great, and now this happens. It's just really unfortunate. I even heard a quote where he said, I stopped worrying about the results now and trying to press and be perfect. I'm just having fun out there again on the mound. And it sucks that he was just having fun and then this bites him in the butt. It's kind of been the Chris Sale story, right, for the past couple seasons where, you know, things are kind of looking up and then immediately like an injury happens. And, you know, last year, obviously, he had that fluke injury um, where I believe he like punched something, right? And then... um, and was basically just out and just like, man, it kind of sucks for a guy that, you know, has been so dominant in the past and just feels like he's been incredibly unlucky as soon as he's gone to the Red Sox. So, um, yeah, it's, it's tough here. Hopefully he only does miss one start. Um, you know, shoulders are just never fun things for, for pitchers to deal with. And, um, yeah, hopefully he's, he's back healthy soon. Yeah, I have a few shares of sale, so I'm really hoping he gets back on the mound soon. He's been great. He's been one of the more reliable pitchers on my staff as of recently, and I'm just hoping that he's okay because whenever you hear left shoulder soreness, it's never usually good for a pitcher, especially of someone who already had some issues with that arm as sale did. Tristan McKenzie of the Guardians will come off of the 60-day IL and make his season debut on Sunday against the Twins. He's been out for two months due to a terrace major strain in his right shoulder. Aaron Savale of the Guardians was activated from the 15-day IL and started against the Twins on Friday. He's been out for two months due to a left oblique strain. Cal Quantrill of the Guardians was placed on the 15-day IL with right shoulder inflammation. He'll be out for at least a couple of weeks after receiving a cortisone injection in his right shoulder. Justin Steele of the Cubs was removed from his start on Wednesday against the Rays due to left forearm tightness. He underwent an MRI and it was reported as only showing a very minor issue. According to Jesse Rogers of ESPN, Steele might only wind up missing one start and avoid the IL. So that's good news there, but pretty similar to what Chris Sale is going through. Obviously for Sale is left shoulder and for Justin Steele is left forearm. But we hope that both of them just miss one start because both of them have been very good this season. Cody Bellinger of the Cubs hit in the cage and did some throwing on Tuesday. The biggest hurdle for him will be running and agility drills as he returns from a left knee contusion. He's missed 18 days due to this injury so far, and it's pretty remarkable, to be honest, because I believe left knee contusion means like left knee bruise or soreness in general. And I watched that outing where Cody Bellinger caught the ball at the wall and banged his knee in it, and he walked off the field fine, and I was like, oh, cool, he's going to miss a few games with a bruise, and then... This happens. He's missed 18 games already. That's pretty remarkable for someone who just bruised their knee, but I 
guess it was a little bit more than bruise, right? It had to be. I mean, there's no way you missed that much time for just a bruise on your knee. It's one of those things where, again, I'm wondering in today's day and age, do we really need a brick wall back there? <laughs> That's very true. Like, like it, people already get injured enough when they like run into these padded walls. And so it's like, hey, come to Wrigley and you can run into a brick wall. Like... <laughs> Like I've yeah. seen so many injuries of just like guys flying into 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 these padded walls, and when you bruise your knee like that, like it's yeah, it's gotta hurt for sure. Yeah, I mean, in general, we should just replace all of the outfield walls with like decent padding, right? I mean, I guess there's history in Wrigley with the ivy, and obviously in Boston, you've got the green monster. So there is stuff that you can't really change, but like just pad up the stuff a little bit more. Right. I mean, like I just I just don't want something to happen here where like you get a sick play like robbing you know a homer or in you know this case catching a ball at the, at the warning track and then you're out for three weeks because you know tradition yeah pretty wild stuff hopefully bellinger comes back soon because he was actually doing really well and it stinks to see him miss any time due to a left knee contusion Willie Adamas of the Brewers was placed on the seven-day concussion IL after a freak incident where Brian Anderson fouled a ball off that struck Adamas in the head in the dugout. He resumed baseball activities on Friday with High A Wisconsin, but won't join the Brewers during their current series in Cincinnati. I know you usually avoid seeing these things, John, but did you happen to see this one? Uh, I did not see this one, unfortunately, but oh, I guess fortunately, technically, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um... Yeah, it's it's. I remember reading about it, um, and you never love it when you know a guy's just chilling in the dugout, and then all of a sudden, like a ball's coming straight towards their face. So, um, yeah, it's it's unfortunate, but hopefully the concussion isn't isn't too serious, and he's able to be back soon. Yeah, it was crazy because you really don't see it too often. He was just hanging over the rail, and Brian Anderson fouled off a pitch, and it literally went right to his head, and it grazed off the side of it. So it mm-hmm. thankfully didn't hit him square in the face or anything like that, but it did hit his head pretty clean and he kind of just like wobbled back and landed in the dugout on the bench. And everyone was like, Oh God, what's going on? And Brian Anderson was visibly distraught. Freddie Peralta, who's on the mound that day is really close friends with Willie Adamas. And obviously he had a really bad start in that one because I bet his head was wandering somewhere else thinking about his friend rather than pitching. So yeah, right. really not a good look when that kind of thing happens. I mean, you almost have to think that people shouldn't hang over the rail, right? I mean, it's just part of the game supporting your team and watching from that perspective, but it's scary stuff when you see something like this happen. Yeah, I mean, I was at a game a couple last week, I think it was, yeah, between Toronto and the Twins, and, like, there was a foul ball that just kind of line drive and hit a dude in the chest, like, um, in the Toronto dugout, and he ended up being okay, which was good, but, yeah, you just see so many freak freak accidents where, you know, guys are just getting hit just you know hanging out in the dugout and i don't really know if there's a way to fix that i mean you could have put up like netting or things like that but it probably takes away a little bit of that aspect of just you know rooting on your guys and and kind of just hanging out so it's it's just one of those things about baseball i know we just we literally just talked about the brick wall in wrigley you know this is another one of those things where you know baseball's a relatively safe sport all things considered but there are just going to be things that happen that um, that people get dinged or you know hit, and it's it's hard to come up with a you know all the safety measures we can to protect everyone. Yeah, and if they put a net up where the dugout is, 
when anyone hits a walk off, a lot of players would get tangled in it, so it'd be pretty difficult. But yeah, imagine them like running, <laughs> like trying to jump over. They're like, oh wait, there's a the net here. And yeah, and they like, forget, running. and they just jump into the net, and they're stuck yeah. there. <laughs> it'd be yeah. funny. Maybe maybe we just do it for comedic relief. Honestly, yeah, maybe we just put like a Reynolds wrap. Oh seal, yes, and we just let them run into it. And we see what happens. That'd be pretty funny. That would be hilarious. <laughs> Carlos Correa of the Twins made an early exit from Thursday's game against the Guardians after re-aggravating the plantar fasciitis in his left heel. He was held out of Friday's lineup as well, but his status is up in the air at the moment. Consider him day-to-day for now. Byron Buxton of the Twins was also removed from Thursday's game against the Guardians due to rib soreness. He was hit by a 97-mile-per-hour Tanner Bybee fastball directly in the ribs. He'll undergo some testing, and he's considered day-to-day for now as well. Giancarlo Stanton of the Yankees was activated from the 10-day IL on Friday. He's coming back from a left hamstring strain. Anthony Rizzo of the Yankees returned to the lineup on Friday after missing three straight games due to lingering neck soreness. Wander Franco of the Rays was held out of Wednesday's game due to shoulder soreness, but he returned to the lineup on Friday. Michael Conforto of the Giants is considered day-to-day with a bruised left heel after medical imaging came back clean on Wednesday. He's missed two straight games now. Riley Green of the Tigers was placed on the 10-day IL on Wednesday, May 31st with a left fibula stress fracture. He will miss at least a few weeks. Eduardo Rodriguez of the Tigers could miss multiple months due to the ruptured pulley in his left index finger. A hand surgeon that was interviewed by Cody Stavenhagen of The Athletic said that it could take six to eight weeks before a pitcher with such an injury could resume high-intensity throwing. For reference, Adam Wainwright missed 10 weeks with a similar injury in 2008, so not great news for Eduardo Rodriguez. A couple of reliever notes here. Jose Alvarado of the Phillies will begin a minor league rehab assignment on Saturday. He's coming back from left elbow inflammation. Pete Fairbanks of the Rays was placed on the 15-day IL on Monday with left hip inflammation. An MRI revealed no structural damage, so he'll receive a PRP injection and be shut down from throwing for a week before being reevaluated. Andres Munoz of the Mariners struck out two in a perfect inning for AAA Tacoma on Tuesday. He averaged 99 miles per hour with his fastball in his first appearance. Munoz has been out since April with a shoulder strain. If you're in a saves plus hold league, now is the time to grab Munoz if he's not rostered already. Marco Gonzalez of the Mariners will undergo testing on his forearm and have his start skipped Saturday versus the Rangers. He felt discomfort after his start against the Pirates on Sunday, and as a result, it looks like Brian Wu will be called up by the Mariners. He has a locker for him in Texas, as reported by Shannon Dreyer on Twitter, and should start on Saturday. All I know about him is that he has a great fastball that touches 98 to 99 miles per hour, and he's got a good slider. So if you're looking for someone to stream, it is against Texas, but Brian Wu has some big upside, so take your chances if you may. Lars Newbar of the Cardinals was placed on the 10-day IL, retroactive to May 30th with a lower back contusion. Newbar will require some extended rest after injuring his back while chasing down a fly ball during Monday's game against the Royals. And in correspondence to that, Jordan Walker of the Cardinals was called back up from AAA Memphis on Friday. He started in right field and batted 8th against the Pirates. Welcome back, Jordan Walker. Lance McCullers Jr. of the Astros was shut down from throwing off a mound because of soreness in his forearm. We'll know more about McCullers' status in about a week, but I've pretty much written him off everywhere because I just don't think this guy ever can pitch more than like 40 innings in a season. So hopefully he comes back strong, but it's just the same old story with Lance McCullers at the moment. Forrest Whitley of the Astros is expected to miss three to four months due to a right latch strain. You have to feel for the kid because he's been a top prospect for so long and he's just constantly gotten hurt. So hopefully Whitley can make a strong return after this one. 
And last but not least, Edwin Diaz of the Mets told Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic that he believes he can join the Mets before the end of the season. If everything keeps going how it's going, we've got a chance to pitch, said Diaz. The trainers and doctors will decide, but I feel great. Let's see what's coming for us. Obviously awesome news to hear, and hopefully Diaz can come back sometime in 2023. It would be awesome to hear the trumpets again in City Field. But John, before we move on to the weekly performance recap, any last notes about this list? Uh, if you're in saves leagues, um, definitely check out that Phillies situation just because Kirk Kimball's right now their main uh, closer, I believe. And yep. that's a very fluid situation because they have also Gregory Soto. Um, Sir Anthony Dominguez, I think, is yep. still on that team. So they've got a lot of firepower. Uh, but they've opted with Kimbrough kind of in that closer role just because he's um, just more experienced in, in that sort of role. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, keep a close eye on that one. And then, yeah, the Andres Munoz, Paul Seawald thing, like would not be surprised if the um, the Mariners decide to, instead of having one of them be the defined closer, just kind of putting each one in depending on the situation and, and how they feel safe um, about that whole, uh, about who they're facing and, and, the, and the leverage situation. So, um, yeah, keep an eye on those those things. And then with the Rays, obviously Jason Adam is currently the closer for the Rays. Um, and the the interesting thing here is that the other Rays pitchers in their bullpen aren't exactly like high quality guys. Like you know you've got Colin Poche who's you know been okay, but behind behind him, I mean Jake Diekman got uh, signed by the Rays after being dropped by the White Sox, but he's not he's not really going to be in any sort of uh, setup role there. Ironically, though, if you look on roster resource, instead of listing guys who are closers, the guys who are set up, uh, they just list the four closers for the Rays because that's usually how it ends up anyways. Yeah, that's a great point. Definitely keep an eye on the Phillies bullpen because Alvarado was the closer. He was pretty much getting every save opportunity when he wasn't hurt. So it is Craig Kimbrell at the moment. And when Alvarado comes back, I think they might still lean with Kimbrell. Because they do have Gregory Soto, who is a lefty out of the pen. So they could just use him in the lefty matchups where they need it in the middle of the game. But I don't know. Alvarado is really good. In saves plus holds leagues, Alvarado is a clear top 10 option. So definitely yes, get him sure. back in your lineups. But if Alvarado's out there and you do roster Craig Kimbrell, definitely scoop him up. Or if you picked up Kimbrell and have Alvarado on the IL, make that switch depending on what happens. So keep an eye on that. And I think with the Mariners... I think Paul Seawald will still be the closer, but I definitely could see Munoz filling in on the days that Seawald has off or just getting more save opportunities than we saw before because he is so elite. So hopefully he can return to form and get some saves along the way. But I think all three of these guys, Alvarado, Fairbanks, Munoz, when they're active, they're amazing in save plus hold leagues. And they're probably, except for Munoz, the guy for saves in their respective pens. But before we move on to the weekly performance recap, we are going to take a quick break. So stay tuned. When it comes to weight management, we tend to put our focus on what we eat, but Noom's approach puts the focus on why we eat, and that's a game changer. Noom uses science and personalization so you can manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain, and they help you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have those cravings. Noom's personalized courses are easy to follow, and will help grow your confidence with tools you can put into practice on day one. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. 
And based on a sample of 4,272 Noomers, 98% say Noom helps change their habits and behaviors for good. Try Noom today and see the results for yourself. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. All right, it's time for the weekly performance recaps. Just a reminder for everyone, we get most of our hitter and pitcher highlights from the daily articles on the PitcherList website. The hitter recap and SP Roundup articles are incredible resources to read to see how players performed each day. So make sure you go and check those out on the website. But, John, who did well over this weekend? Yeah, over the weekend, we're going to start out with uh, Jack Swinski of the Pirates. He went three for five with two homers, two runs, and three RBI. He entered Friday's game slashing 150, 282, 233 um, in May. So 19 games in May, that's what he was doing, and those are not good numbers. Uh, But this one was a great performance for Swinski. He got George Kirby in the fifth on a blast to straightaway center, 103 off the bat, went 417 feet. And then he decided, you know what, I can do that better. And then in the seventh, hit another homer, 110.5 miles per hour off the bat, 445 feet. So barely he was feeling it. He's shown plenty of power this season. The problem really is the strikeout rate. It's it's hovering around 30%. Uh, it's just not a number that you love to see. It makes him hard to hold on to. And also, he was batting 150 in May. So, you know, not great there. He's still contributing counting stats, right? That power is resulting in homers and RBIs for sure. Uh, and I think despite the poor ratios of May, if you're in a league where it makes sense to keep Sawinski, I think you keep holding on to him. Then Jonathan India of the Reds uh, went through for five with two homers, two runs of five RBI on Saturday. The Reds are surging in the NL Central. They just passed the Cubs in the standings. Um, they're currently right now third. Um, they're still four games back of the Pirates, but... Um, they are not the cellar dwellers that we usually associate with the Reds. India is kind of a big reason why that's working out. He's hitting 278 with a 798 OPS in May. He's got four of his five total home runs this month as well. The strikeout rate's also gone up by 7%. Now it's at 21% in May. Um, but because he's been more aggressive at the plate, that I think that's allowed him to get more power. You know, those four home runs essentially being evidence of that. Now, the only question is, what are the Reds going to do when they eventually call up Ellie De La Cruz, who's pretty much kind of guaranteed to be called up any time in the next few days? Um, Ellie plays, you know, shortstop, third base. So he's not actually pushing India out of a spot immediately, but they did also call up Matt McLean, who's a shortstop. And so there might be some shifting in that Reds infield, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with India. There's been some rumors about trades, but the Reds have pretty much denied it, and India has said, you know, he'd like to stay in Cincinnati. And then finally on Sunday, Ryan McMahon of the Rockies went through for four with a double, a homer, three runs, five RBI, and a walk. Uh, McMahon had those three hits and those five RBIs to help the Rockies beat the Mets 11-10. Um, he got a single in the first, a double in the fourth, got a homer in the fifth, and so naturally everyone was on triple watch. He did not get that. He struck out in his last uh, at-bat. He is currently slashing 255, 336, 475. Um, that slugging number is pretty impressive for a big man, but just remember he does play in Colorado. He is dealing with the 31% strikeout rate, which um, is a little bit high for a big man, but it's also kind of indicative of just his approach at the plate. Um, he did break it down in May, which is good. Um, he does have a higher OPS as well in May. So in the last month, he has done a little bit better in kind of controlling that aggression at the plate in terms of you know swinging and missing 
If he does get hot, he could be one of the best second base eligible hitters in fantasy baseball. But when he's cold, um, well, McMahon's just not worth rostering. And uh, that's kind of what it's been for the last few months. He's sat on a lot of waiver wires, and uh, we'll see if you know this May uh, performance, which was you know decent, uh, translates to better things for him uh, as the summer continues. Yeah, so Sawinski was someone who I was really, really liking at the start of the season. His baseball savant page was all red. He looked absolutely elite across the board. And then he really slowed down, and we pretty much could have expected that. I mean, he wasn't going to keep doing what he was doing. They had to cool off at some point, but Jackson Winsky looks really good. He's a promising player, so I would continue to hold on to him. Like you said, he has been really bad in this last month, really, in May, and I expect it to bounce back a bit, but I think you give him a little bit more of a leash, and if he struggles like this still in June, then you probably have to cut bait with him, but his underlying numbers are still looking pretty good, so don't give up on Jack Sawinski quite yet. For Jonathan India, he's been so much better recently. For a while, I think he had like 12 straight games where he just scored runs. He didn't give any RBI, had no homers, just scored runs. That's it. But India is extremely valuable in fantasy. He's been such a good rock at second base for people, and I know I drafted him in a few leagues, and I'm very excited about the production that I've got from him already. You brought up a great point with the Ellie De La Cruz call-up. First of all, before I get into that, do you think Ellie De La Cruz gets called up soon? I feel like he does, just because I don't know what the Reds, um, what would be the reason for the Reds to not call him up. Like, he is destroying AAA pitching. Like, yeah. I think he's, like, setting basically new max EV record. It feels like he's setting, like, new max EV records, like, every single day. Yeah. Um, like, he's he's clearly just mashing and just destroying AAA pitching. So he has nothing left to prove there. I think the they, they clearly could bring him up. I mean, Nick Senzel's currently listed as their main third baseman, but he's also played a little bit of left field. Um, Spencer Steer is currently their first baseman, yep. but um, you know he could be moved if he's underperforming. I mean, he is. He, this is his rookie season essentially. Like they have plenty of reasons to not sit on their hands with De La Cruz, um, and I to me it makes it makes too much sense to bring him up. I just say, I'm just wondering where does he play, right? If he goes to third base, then you move Senzel to the outfield. Um, and, you know, then you've got some other guys out there. But it, again, like, would you rather have Nick Senzel, who is an okay player, or Eli De La Cruz, who probably is the future of your franchise? So I actually think there's no clog here. I was hoping Ellie De La Cruz would actually get called up this weekend, especially with all the weird conspiracy stuff that's been going on with him. I don't yeah. know if you've been mm -hmm. keeping up with that, but it's been bit. really strange. Like the minor league Twitter has been tweeting out like congratulations and stuff like that and showing mm -hmm. Ellie in a Reds uniform and talking about him. And then on his personal Instagram, he put up a story that had the Post Malone song congratulations in the background with him in a Reds yeah. uniform. So yep. I've been reading into the lines, and I've stashed him in a few places, but I really thought he was going to be called up against the Brewers in this weekend series because the Reds are still in this division. They're only four games behind the Brewers, and I thought this would be the perfect time to call him up. He did just recently strike out a lot. I think it was five times. He went 0 for 5 at least. I know that, but he struck out a lot in his last game. He did hit a walk-off home run before that game, so he's been great, and I really don't know what is left to prove 
for Ellie De La Cruz. So I'm hoping he comes up sooner rather than later. And like I said before, I don't think there's that much of a block. Spencer Steer's currently playing well and is at first base. Nick Senzel's yep. at third. Just move him to the outfield or send him down and put Ellie at third. It's really not that hard of a situation. It's more hard for Christian Encarnacion Strand, who's a first mm. baseman, because then you have to move Steer. And Steer will either yep. have to DH or go to the outfield in a position he's not really played. Mm-hmm. So that's the issue I see with CES more than Ellie De La Cruz. I think Ellie fits right into this lineup. So I'm hoping we see him soon. I really thought he was coming up this weekend. Like I was convinced. That's why I stash him. I normally don't stash prospects like that because mm-hmm. in most of my leagues, there's no slot to put them in. You just have to eat a bench spot for it. Right. So I really thought he was coming up and I really hope it's soon because he is promising and could be a huge difference maker. I'd put him on a little bit of a level like Royce Lewis, where if he's out there, you need to grab him because he can really change your season around. Right. I I mean, I'm just looking at his minor league numbers. He's currently slugging 626 in AAA. Yeah. Like, yep. like that's the OPS of some players. So it's like he clearly needs to be called up. Um and yeah, I mean, the all the rumors reporting him to be called up this weekend. I mean, pretty much everyone on the Pitchless Discord was expecting it to happen today, Friday. Right. Um, and the fact that he didn't get called up is is kind of surprising. Um, and so we'll we'll see what the Reds do. Uh, but like you said, like they have no reason to not bring him up. Like he's going to be better than probably Nick Senzel. And if yep. they move Senzel to the outfield, the only thing that's blocking them is like TJ Friedel is yeah. out there. Big like, whoop. Yeah, they've got Will Benson, who yeah, I have right. no idea who that is. Stuart Fairchild. Like, like clearly, Ellie is better than all four of those players. So yep. just shifting around the roster is not going to do anything. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that the Reds have every right to call him up because, like I said, they're in the midst of the division right now. They're only 26-31, and 31, but they're only four games behind the Brewers, who are 30-27. and 27. So you got to give your best effort, and the best effort is if Ellie De La Cruz is on the field for you because he's been insane. And then Ryan McMahon, he's someone that I wanted to recommend because of the core series. I recommended Jorge Soler to all my friends because <laughs> the Rockies series is pretty helpful when you're hitting at cores and against lefties and Soler mashes right. them. But McMahon mm-hmm. had a stretch where he was at cores and he's been really good as of late and he hit three home runs in three straight games. So really great to see from him. He's been awesome. But like you said, if he gets cold, he's pretty much useless. But if he's hot, he could be one of the top 10 second base options out there. And third base, I think he has eligibility on Yahoo for. So mm-hmm. he right. could be very helpful. Yeah. Well, moving on to pitchers, uh, all this Reds talk, we're going to start with Hunter Green of the Reds going up against the Cubs on Friday. Six innings, zero earned runs, zero hits, two walks, and 11 strikeouts. Uh, it's kind of incredible how good Green looks when he's not playing in Cincinnati. <laughs> of course, the smaller park doesn't help him get more strikeouts, but he does have a 361 slugging when he's pitching away from home and a 505 slugging when he's at home. Of course, that makes sense because of all the homers that um, he's probably giving up or just, you know, Great American Small Park does its thing. But the funny thing is he actually has a lower strikeout rate at home as well. I'm wondering if this is just like a thing where he's like more willing to put, um, you know, dangerous pitches or things like that when he's away because he knows that, you know, you can't get like when he makes a mistake at another park, it's not going to be as damaging. But that's just some speculation on my part. He's still pretty much a premium cherry bomb because of where he plays most of the time. Uh, but when he's grooming the ball like this, it's hard to not get excited about what Green can do for your teams for the rest of the season. Zach Wheeler of the Phillies uh, went up against Atlanta on Saturday, went eight innings, zero and runs, three hits, one walk, and 12 strikeouts. Wheeler's had like an off year this year if you only look at his ERA, which is the highest it's been since the rabbit ball season. 
However, everything else looks really good. His strikeout rate is still above his career average. The walk rate's been about the same that it's been for the last five years. If anything, he's gotten a little unlucky with a high BABIP, but he's limiting hard contact in homers pretty well. Um, really solid numbers there. He had an incredible night against a really dangerous Atlanta ball club. Um, they've been one of the better offenses this season. Um, and that was impressive because he came off some poor starts against Arizona and San Francisco. Of course, by poor, I don't really mean they were terrible. He just gave up four runs. Um, but, you know, for Zach Wheeler, a guy who's a top 10 pitcher, maybe we expect a little bit more out of him. He has had more poor starts than high quality starts this season. So that was, you know, maybe a reason some people were willing to trade Wheeler. However, if you have him on your team, he's still a top 10 pitcher. I'd say continue to enjoy the season. And then finally, Mackenzie Gore on Sunday went up against the Royals, went seven innings, one earned run, three hits, one walk, and 11 strikeouts. We're starting to see Gore's prospect pedigree blossom as he's carving up batters. He's got a 30% strikeout rate. He's still walking way too many batters, but he has managed a respectable 3.57 ERA despite a very high 1.41 whip. Now, most pitchers are expected to dominate against the Royals, but Gore took it to another level with 10 whips on his slider alone. The fastball was also getting called strikes and was well-located in general. Of course, he has a bunch of tough matchups ahead with Philly, Atlanta, and Houston as his uh, next three starts. But if he can survive those, we might have a budding ace in Washington. So for Hunter Green, this is the hot stretch that we've been waiting for, really. I mean, yep. we constantly kept saying, hey, hold on with Hunter Green. Don't panic. Obviously, he had an inflated ERA and didn't look too great so far in the start of 2023, but these last three starts, the Yankees, seven innings, 10 strikeouts, four earned runs, but with a one whip. And really you can't blame him because I think one or two of those runs came in the seventh inning when he came back out with already like 95 pitches. Mm -hmm. So they just sent him out there because he was carving everybody up and then just happened to give up a few more runs. Then against Chicago, six innings, 11 strikeouts, no earned runs. I believe he had no hits given up in that game and just a walk. Yep. So, mm -hmm. Incredible. And then against Boston, six innings, eight Ks, 1.5 ERA, 0.83 whip on June 1st. So it's really awesome to see him dominate in these last three starts. And I think it really is starting to turn for him. He's now at a 3.92 ERA, a 1.32 whip, 88 Ks in 62 innings pitched. Obviously, the wins were never going to be there because he plays for the Reds. Yeah. But he's getting quality starts now. He's striking out everybody like we thought he would. He does get the Dodgers next, which is kind of tough and a tough test. And it's yep. also at Great American Small Park. So not too excited about that, but I really trust him at the moment with how good he's throwing the ball. Zach Wheeler, I wouldn't worry about him in general. And like you mentioned, he has had a lot of more poor starts than he has good mm -hmm. starts. And right. as we're recording this on Friday, he actually went 3.2 innings pitched against the Nationals and gave up seven earned runs. So... Yeah. <laughs> pretty volatile from Wheeler, which is pretty crazy to say because he's been a reliable top 10 ace for yep. the last few seasons. Mm -hmm. So I think you just got to stay the course. Obviously, it's frustrating. I mean, I think the Phillies staff in general has been frustrating. Ranger Suarez was out for a while. Aaron Nola hasn't really? been his usual self, right? Like, yep. I think the Philly staff will come around and Wheeler and Nola will all start dominating again. So just be patient with him. And Mackenzie Gore, he's been great recently. He's been really, really good. I'm happy I have a share of him in Dynasty. Yeah, it's kind of funny with the whole Wheeler thing because, yeah, he just, he's been blowing up more times this season, right? Like, he'll have these starts where he has four, four runs, five runs, and then he'll 
have a start after that where he doesn't give up any runs and only gives up like three hits or something like that, you know? Yep. Um, and, you know, that looking at Wheeler's performance um, today, right, he gives up seven runs in 3.2 innings. The thing is, all the velocities are about the same. So it's not like an injury thing. Like, that was sometimes a worry with Wheeler last season. Right. Where it was like, oh, is he hurt? He's not hurt. He's just doing poorly right now. Yeah. Like, he, he swings, you know, very good and then very poorly. And, yeah, that can be very frustrating as, you know, a fantasy manager to to have to deal with that. So it will be interesting to see what what he does as the season goes on because we all know, like, Wheeler has top 10 pitcher potential. And I think you should, like I said, you should continue to enjoy the season. Like, he's going to have better starts um, more often than not. And, yeah, when these blips happen, obviously it sucks. But um, when he's on... He's, yeah, he's one of the best. Yeah, I mean, look at the line that he had against Atlanta. Eight innings, no earned runs, 12 Ks. I mean, that's the upside of Wheeler and what he can normally do. But then, yeah. as mm-hmm. of recent, he's had those really bad outings, like against the Nationals, 3.2 innings pitched, seven earned runs. Like, it doesn't make much sense. But I think every one of these struggling pitchers that we expect to be aces will figure it out very soon. I feel like it's going to correct itself very soon. Right. Moving on to Monday, May 29th, with the Daily Hitting Recap article by Gabe Gorelnik. We start with Royce Lewis of the Twins, who went 2-for-5 with a home run, run, and 4 RBI. One year to the day that he tore his ACL, Lewis returned to the Twins lineup and hit a big 3-run homer to the opposite field. I told everyone last week, like I mentioned earlier, to stash him if you could, and it's already paying off. In three games so far, he's 4-for-13 with three runs, two home runs, and six RBI. Lewis has also started four games at third base, so he could be getting third base eligibility everywhere pretty soon, alongside his current shortstop eligibility. As long as he's healthy, I think he will be a very strong fantasy asset. So if he's out there, grab him, because as long as he stays healthy, like I said, I think he's a very big impact player. And then Michael Massey of the Royals, he went two for three with a homer, a run, two RBI, and a walk. After this two-hit game for Massey, that's his third consecutive multi-hit game. Massey's home run came in the ninth inning and had an exit velocity of 106.6 miles per hour. That's important because Massey is hitting the ball harder than he did last season in his short stint in the majors. I like Massey a lot for deeper leagues, that is. He's really not viable in anything 12 teams or less. He's more of a 14-15 team deep league kind of deal. But his strikeout rate is at 32.5%, which is not good. And his BABIP is 330, which most likely won't sustain. However, his slugging percentage is currently 347, and his X-slug is 443. So we might see an increase in the power from Massey, which is a testament to him hitting the ball harder. But we just have to wait and see if those expected numbers kind of fall in line with what he's been doing. Yeah, the thing is, he's going to be able to be in the lineup every day for the Royals as long as he continues being solid because that team does not know how to hit a ball right now. No. <laughs> um, they yeah, they are struggling offensively. So yeah, if 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 he continues to do well, the Royals will continue to play and give him more opportunities. And I think for you know for young guys like that, that consistency is just key, you know, being able to just get in the lineup, see more pitches, um, get more familiar with major league pitching. And yeah, I think that's that'll be really good. And uh, obviously for Royce Lewis as a Twins fan, just so happy for him to be back. Um, and yeah, it's kind of auspicious. Like, he's literally back on the day that he got hurt last season. Um, and yeah, his recovery has been incredible. It's kind of funny. Like, the Twins had to put him on the 60 day IL, or else he would have, like, pushed his 
uh, rehab like so much faster. And they were just like, hey, just just chill. Like we we know you like <laughs> you want to play like you're running like he was running like sprints in spring training. I was like, oh, I could be back in like you know three weeks. And, like, and the Twins were like, uh, yeah, you're coming back from two ACL injuries. Like we just want to take this as slow as we can. So they put him on the 60 DIL to force him procedurally to to not be able to play. So. It was kind of fun, but I'm so glad he's up with the Twins now. And, um, yeah, it's going to be a really fun season to watch him continue uh, growing on this team. Yeah, just relax, buddy. You don't have to really push it with the two ACL injuries. Like, ease your way back and do what you're doing now because you've been incredible. But moving on to pitchers from Monday, we have the SP Roundup article, I, Soroka, from Nick Pollock. We start with the title man himself, Michael Soroka of the Braves. Six innings pitched, four earned runs, five hits, two walks, and three strikeouts against the Athletics. Over 1,000 days later, Michael Soroka finally retook the mound. He looked good in this one, too. Not overpowering, especially against an underwhelming A's team, but it was a good first showing. His fastball was located well, his sinker was all around the zone, the slider was okay, and the changeup looked great. Nick labels Soroka as a Toby, which is a middling pitcher that has little upside, but a steady floor to provide stability in your rotation. If you need wins and lower peripherals, which doesn't sound too bad these days, then Soroka will definitely do the trick. Just don't expect a lot of strikeouts. Then we have Logan Allen of the Guardians, who went seven innings pitched, no earned runs, three hits, two walks, and ten strikeouts against the Orioles. What a great start from Allen. He's someone that I really didn't put too much thought into after all the rookie pitchers that we've seen come up. And to my fault, I was caring about Tanner Bybee a bit more, but Allen shouldn't be overlooked. I actually grabbed him in the two leagues that he was available in just recently, and I'm excited about it. He hasn't been someone that gets a lot of whiffs, but in this one, he did just that. 19 whiffs and a 40% CSW against a good Orioles lineup. His changeup and sweeper each returned a 50% CSW with 12 whiffs between them. Allen's changeup has only held a 53% strike rate and a 26% CSW so far, so it's nice to see that it dominated in this one. Don't sleep on Allen like I did. Now that Quantrill is on the IL, Allen's rotation spot shouldn't be in question even with the returns of McKenzie and Savale. The rotation should be Bieber, Bybee, McKenzie, Savale, and Allen. So it looks like he's pretty safe now that Quantrill's on the IL and Plesak, I believe, got sent down. So I think that he's got a safe spot and he's been rolling. So hopefully he can keep this production up. And then lastly, shout out to Marcus Stroman of the Cubs, who pitched a one hit complete game shutout with eight strikeouts against the Rays. He had 20 whiffs and a 36% CSW in this one, which is crazy because against the Mets in his last start where he went eight innings, he only had two whiffs on the whole day. And then against the best team in baseball record wise, he gets 20 whiffs. You can't make it make sense. <laughs> Stroman is one of those guys where it's just this season has been a charmed life for him, man. Like, yeah, for real. Um, like especially if you're in a quality star league, man. Stroman has been lights out. Um, uh, and yeah, Logan Allen, I think, is one of those really interesting pitchers because every start that I have him in, I he does well, and then I drop him just because you know I don't think the next one's going to be good. Um, I. I, I had him for his start before, and then I was like, oh, the Orioles are a good like offense team. Like, yep. I don't think I want to risk it. And then, of course, he has this one. And he, he doesn't have any flashy stuff, but he's just a really solid pitcher. And I think like the 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 Guardians are able to use that in an effective way for him. And, um, yeah, it's cool to see that um, he's turning in performances like this. Um, and it is getting closer where, like, in my 10-teamer, like, I might have to consider, like, 
Logan Allen being like one of my solid guys that I keep on my my roster for the rest of the season. Just instead of just you know picking up him, picking him up and dropping him, just because he does look, he looks like the real deal. And he, like you said, he's going to be uh, on that roster, and I don't think they have a reason to send him down. Yeah, I mean, he really only had one bad start, I would say, and that was against the Angels, where he went four point one innings, six point two three ERA, and a two point three one WHIP. That's clearly yep. a bad start, but every other start, it's been good. I mean, his ERA right now is 2.72, and his whip is a little high at 1.31, but he gets over a strikeout per inning. He's on the Guardian, so they're going to let him get quality starts, and he's going to get wins. I just think that he's someone that you should roster, and like you said, even in your 10-team league, in my 10-team league, I just lost Chris Sale to the injury, obviously, and I picked mm-hmm. up Logan Allen, and I'm going to keep him on my roster because he's been great, and if he's getting quality starts, that's exactly what the doctor ordered. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, sometimes we care about, like, the flashy stuff with these young pitchers. Um, You know, like, Brandon Fott kind of comes to mind where he looked, right. just looked electric in the minors. Logan Allen's, like, it's not that Logan Allen was a bad pitcher in the minors. He just didn't have the same prospect pedigree that all these other guys have. Yeah. Um, But he looks so solid uh, up in the majors. And, and you know, kind of in related news, Grayson Rodriguez, who was considered basically the top pitching prospect this season, has was sent down because right, yep. he just wasn't doing well for the Orioles. So it's it's always interesting with these with these rookie rookie pitchers where some of them, you know, come out of nowhere and, and look really good. You know, Bryce Miller in, in Seattle is one of those examples. He was in double A, got called up and now he he definitely doesn't look like he's leaving that rotation anytime soon. And um yeah, Logan Allen, same story where I, I think he's just been such a solid guy and he's been reliable and that that's that's kind of all you need. Yep, I completely agree. Well, moving on to Tuesday, um, thanks to Mark Stubinger for his work on writing the Daily Hitting Recap. Uh, we're going to start with Brian De La Cruz, who went three for four with a homer, two runs, three RBI, and a walk. Um, De La Cruz had been a hot pickup the week before, as he had four games in cores. We talked about Jorge Soler being one of those pickups, too. Um, and funny enough, for De La Cruz, he didn't hit a single homer in that series. Uh, however, he teed off against the Padres on Tuesday. Big hit of the day was a 426-foot blast to left field for his seventh home run this season. Taylor Cruz has been one of the season's bright spots in Miami. He's currently slashing 295, 348, 456, but he does have a 385 Babbitt, which is pretty high. That's the 90. That's in the 95th percentile in the league. Couple that with an extremely low fly ball rate, and you can see why there might be concern. His ground balls are getting through the infield, uh, resulting in hits. Um, and you know if he he starts um, you know not hitting them as hard or you know if the fielders start adjusting to him correctly um, that that Babbitt's going to go down. But he's only 26 years old. He's in his third MLB season. I think he could definitely be still a solid contributor all season long. But this might be the best time to move him if you don't believe the hype. And then uh, Jake McCarthy of the Diamondbacks went two for three with two stolen bases on Tuesday. Uh, his teammate, Corbin Carroll, was actually the main star of this game. He got a homer and two stolen bases. But Jake the Snake has made the most of his return from his late April demotion. He has started all five games since he was uh, just called up again, and he's collected five hits and he stole five bags in that stretch. Looking at the D-backs roster, there really doesn't seem to be anyone else pushing him for playing time in the outfield right now, so he should be up here for a while. If you're looking for some help in the speed department, McCarthy might be worth a pickup. So Brian De La Cruz, yeah, he was definitely someone alongside Soler last week that was a smart pickup. He was someone that has been hot and then had four games at cores, and he's just been really, really good. And like you mentioned, he's slashing 295, 348, 456. He's definitely someone that you should ride out while he's hot. If you can move him, 
I highly doubt anyone would want to trade for Brian De La Cruz, maybe in a deeper league, but if you can move him, definitely do so because it might not last, but he's been very good, so ride it out while you can. And then Jake McCarthy, it's great to see him back and stealing bases. That was obviously the main concern. He looked really lost at the start of the season, and I think he was pushing really hard because, once again, we only saw a half season out of McCarthy last season. And when he went off, it was in that second half of the season last year, and he was dominant, but we haven't seen him struggle at any point. We haven't seen what it looks like when he's bad, and that's what we really got an eye on this season when he started off doing terribly, and obviously they demoted him, and they let him get some reps in the minors and had Dominic Fletcher fill in, but it's great to see McCarthy come back, and he looks like he's not pushing anymore. He looks more comfortable up there. He's batting ninth mm -hmm. on most days. But the fact that he's stealing bases is what you want to see out of him because I think a lot of people had him as a sleeper this season when they were drafting, thinking that he could be maybe like a 15 homer, 30 steal kind of guy. And if we could just get like 10 homers and 25 steals from Jake McCarthy for the rest of the season and that's his final line, I think you're happy with that. Yeah, I had an interesting trade opportunity to get Jake McCarthy in the beginning of the season. But the weird thing was, like, no one knew whether he was going to be, like, a fourth outfielder or was he going to be, like, a solid guy in the um, in the, in the the lineup. And then, yeah, he had that weird April. It just wasn't very good. They sent him down. Um, but now he's back, and he's he's doing what he does best, right? He's stealing bases, like you said. And I think that makes him more valuable if, he, if he's doing that. And, you know, by doing that, maybe he's not trying to crush the ball as much. Maybe he's just, like, focusing, like, I can you know, be an average hitter or, you know, making contact and things like that and just get on base because that's how I help this team as, like, the number nine hitter. Yeah, and that's all you can really contribute. If that's your skill set, which his is obviously stealing bases, even in the nine hole, it's great to set himself up because then he has someone we're going to talk about later, which I'm actually going to highlight a little bit, Cattell Marte, who's been having a pretty good season, where he, you've got him and then you've got Corbin Carroll and you've got Christian Walker. So if you get on base and reset it in the nine spot, he's going to score a lot of runs. He's going to steal a lot of bases. So... He's a really good option, and if he's still out there in your leagues, if someone dropped him because they didn't know if he was going to be good or back up, pick him up because I think he's the best pickup you can make right now that's out there. Yeah, a little unrelated, but in a similar vein. I mean, Estuary Ruiz right now is batting leadoff for the A's. Right. Um, and he's still not necessarily like a great hitter by any stretch. You know, he's he is batting 269, which is like pretty impressive, I have to say. His OBP is 335. He's stolen 28 bases. Like, this is a guy who his job is literally get on base and steal and steal when you get on base. <laughs> like, that's right. Yeah. That, that's his role. And he knows it really well. And, like, sure, he's batting leadoff, but McCarthy's batting ninth. That's essentially, you know, leadoff um, the, the come, uh, on the come around, essentially. Like, his job is to get on base and, and get batted in. And Esther Ruiz is playing his role perfectly to the point where he's actually kind of a useful commodity in fantasy baseball because that average isn't like abysmal oh yeah um he gets you runs he gets you stolen bases he gets you average yeah there's like zero power in that lineup uh or in in his makeup he somehow has 24 rbi which is kind of impressive um but yeah like i sure uses one of those guys too for me who is um kind of a under the radar pickup because everyone thinks like oh he's an he's an oakland a he's not worth picking up but he's contributing really well in um both counting stats and ratios yeah, he has. I have him in TGFBI, and he's been phenomenal. I took a late-round stab at him and just hoped that he would get steals, and that's what he's exactly doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, moving on to pitchers, we're going to talk about uh, the uh, SP Roundup article, Kodai Moment, with uh, Nick Pollock. 
Uh, just a quick shout out to both Kodai Senga and Miles Michaelis. They both had stellar starts. Kodai went seven shutout innings with nine strikeouts. Michaelis with eight shutout innings and ten strikeouts. But we are going to talk about Zach Gallen of the Diamondbacks, who went up against Rocky Road, got a win, six innings, zero in runs, five hits, two walks, and seven strikeouts. Gallon was able to deal with a slightly underperforming four-seamer and a cutter at this start, but he got six whips on the curveball, had a 78% strike rate on the changeup. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of the mark of you know these really good pitchers. When they don't have their best stuff, they're still able to dominate um, in useful ways for your fantasy team. And Gallon's been... Honestly, a really solid guy. You know, there were some early season worries. Like he wasn't that he wasn't performing up to what we were all expecting. But I think he's calmed down since um, and been able to turn in some pretty solid performances. And then Ben Lively of the Reds went up against Boston, getting the win in 5.2 innings, no earned runs, four hits, two walks, and six strikeouts. Honestly, I'm still not sure who Ben Lively is, but the Cincinnati pitcher is turning heads with a 1.99 ERA and a 0.93 WHIP through three starts. Obviously, very small sample size. He throws six different pitches, but his main two, the four-seamer and the slider, combined for seven whips and 12 called strikes on Tuesday, and the sicker helped out with three whips on its own. He's held his own so far against the Yankees, the Cardinals, and the Red Sox, and against Milwaukee on Sunday. Uh, he does get the Cardinals in his next start, and we just saw how much the Cardinals, um, you know, their offenses can be really hot when they, they when they want to be. So that might be a dangerous start, but... Milwaukee's not that great. Might be might be worth a pickup if you're looking for a stream this weekend. Uh, and so yeah, check out Ben Lively. I think Ben Lively is just a streamer. I don't think he's anything more. I know a lot of people were making big hoopla over Ben Lively because he's been pitching really well, but I don't think he's going to be great for the whole season. I think that he's faced some good opponents, but he's been pretty successful in total. But I cannot see it sustaining. There's just no way. I think that. He's been very good. Like I said, I think he's usable. I think he's a streamer. I think he's someone that you'd like to roster right now. But I think once he has a bad start or two, you can just cut bait. He's not someone that you have to hold because he is not going to be this good the whole season. But we can only hope. And then Zach Gallen, yeah, he's just an ace. Ace is going to ace with him. He's been awesome. And obviously this one wasn't the greatest. He didn't look too dominant in this one. I was watching it. But he still got the job done. And that's what aces do. They just get the job done. Yep, and that's that's all you can ask for from uh, a guy of his caliber. Oh, yeah. Moving on to Wednesday, May 31st, from the Daily Hitting Recap article from Jim Chatterton, we start with Josh Naylor of the Guardians, who went 4-for-5 four with a homer, 3 runs, 6 RBI, and a stolen base. I think that Naylor should get a little bit more respect from a fantasy perspective. He's not very usable in 10-team leagues or shallower, but he's a good first-base outfield option in deeper leagues with deeper rosters. His one downside is that he's a left-handed hitter who can't hit left-handed pitching. However, besides that, his baseball savant page is surprisingly very red. Naylor's batting average is 251, and his expected batting average is 292. He hits the ball very hard with a 45.7% hard hit rate. And although his WRC plus is 99 at the moment, last year it was 117, and all the underlying numbers say that this year it should be better. With Josh Bell not playing the greatest and Naylor seeing more playing time at first base in DH, I think that Naylor is in for a pretty good season that should help your fantasy teams in places where it makes sense to roster him. His stats are good right now, and his expected stats look even better. So if you have Josh Naylor or if you have the opportunity to pick him up in those deeper leagues, I think you should take a shot on him because he's been really good. John, I have a really funny, I guess, tidbit of information and a quiz for you here. Uh -huh. Yeah. Josh Bell is the main first baseman for the Guardians. And okay. he's someone that I'm very heavily invested in where I thought he was going very late in drafts and I was going to get good value on him and a good first baseman option late. 
And he hasn't been doing so well, but in 53 games, can you tell me how many runs Josh Bell has? Take a stab at it. Josh Bell in 53 games. Yeah, try to take a guess on how many runs he's scored. I'm going to put him around, let's just say, 18. Well, you were half off. He's got nine. (laughs) (laughs) He has scored nine runs in 53 games, which is abysmal. And when I was looking at my roto leagues and i saw that he had nine runs i said wow no wonder i'm doing bad in my leagues like what is this this is horrible so i think that josh naylor is going to seize a lot more playing time than we think josh bell has not been very good naylor's expected stats are really good i just think that he's got some promise and should be respected a little bit more i feel like he's talked about as just like a fill-in guy or something but i think in like 14 team leagues 15 team leagues anywhere that has a corner infield slot josh naylor should be rostered especially if you have josh bell make the swap for josh naylor like josh bell should not be rostered in as many leagues as he is right now because he's been terrible moving on to kybert ruiz of the nationals he went three for four with two home runs three runs and three rbi I fully believe that when a player goes up against a team that traded them or DFA'd them, they dominate that team when they face them. That is exactly what Ruiz did in this one against the Dodgers. People forget that Ruiz was one of the top prospects in the game, and he was the headliner alongside of Josiah Gray in the Max Scherzer and Trey Turner trade. I think that he's a solid buy-low candidate in two catcher leagues, and may even be viable in one catcher leagues due to his low K rate, which at the moment is only 7.6%. His average in 2022 was 251 and his current batting average is 237, but I think that'll be someone that bats 270 from the catcher position with 15 home runs, which puts him in the top 15 with ease. His BABIP is currently 221, so that should correct itself, and we could see a good stretch for Ruiz soon. And then lastly, shout out to some fantasy studs, Shohei Otani and Mookie Betts. Both hit two home runs on Wednesday, so just shout out to them. Yeah, Kybert's one of those catchers who, like, is solid enough to be a starter on like a in a one catcher league um but he really has a lot of value in two catcher leagues because um he's basically above average for for a second catcher um and he's one of those guys where the potential is there and i love it and it's uh it's he's one of those like one of those guys where like we just talked about jonah heim right jonah heim has been doing really well if you look at jonah heim versus kyber Ruiz, like there's not a ton in their profile that's like extremely different where right. it'd be like oh i wouldn't wouldn't you know start ruiz over heim like no i'd probably do that in, in some in some circumstances so um yeah that that average i think should go up especially with that incredibly low babbip the only unfortunate thing is he plays for the nationals yep um who aren't very good at uh, getting guys um home but uh maybe that team does slowly get better maybe they know something in, in washington that we don't know uh, but that the they're at least set at the catcher position, which is pretty cool. Yeah, no, he's been very good, and I think he can be even better than what he's showing right now. And like you said, his stats are pretty comparable to Jonah Heim right now. And in an average league, I probably would lean Ruiz. In an OBP league, most likely Heim. But mm-hmm. in an average league, I mean, Ruiz is showing a lot of promise. And like I said, his BABIP is only 221 at the moment. So that's got to go up, and he should be seeing a higher batting average very soon. Yeah. But moving on to pitchers from Wednesday, we have the SP Roundup article, Shake and Blake from Nick Pollock. Starting off with George Kirby of the Mariners, he was just a stud against the Yankees going eight innings pitch, no earned runs, three hits, no walks, and seven strikeouts in 95 pitches. Great performance from Kirby. He's been great all year. 
Louis Varland of the Twins went seven innings pitched, no earned runs, four hits, one walk, and five Ks against the Astros. I know we expected good things from Varland since joining the Twins rotation, but man, this was a good outing against the potent Astros lineup. He threw his fastball for a 40% CSW, and his slider and changeup were located at the bottom of the zone perfectly. He has the Rays and Jays up next, which is such a brutal schedule getting the Astros, then the Rays and the Jays. But it might be worth grabbing him now because the potential is there. He seems like he's figured things out and he just looks pretty good. Then we have the title boy himself, Blake Snell of the Padres, who went six innings pitched, no earned runs, three hits, three walks, and seven strikeouts against the Marlins. This was probably his best start in a little bit of time. The inconsistency from Snell is just maddening. Why can't he follow his own blueprint? <laughs> Nick pointed out that for Snell to sustain success, he needs to have his four-seamers sitting in the zone and sliders and curveballs being thrown lower for whiffs, which is the Blake Snell blueprint to a T. Well, he threw his fastball in this one for 69% strikes, which is great, but he only got 8 out of 20 strikes on the breaking pitches. He's been frustrating to own, and it might continue to be frustrating because he gets the Cubs, the Rockies at Coors Field, and then the Rays coming up next. I really don't know what to do with Blake Snell if you roster him. You probably have to hold on to him, but I wouldn't blame you if you cut him for someone like Louis Varland or Bobby Miller or one of those type of players because he's just been so frustrating. But if he doesn't figure it out like he hasn't in recent time, it's just hard to roster someone like that. And he can find it in the blink of an eye. He's got the stuff. I mean, he won a Cy Young Award, but yeah, it's just not looking good for Blake Snell. And then Lance Lynn, speaking of people that are just not performing well, he was the opposite of George Kirby by going four innings pitched, eight earned runs, eight hits, two walks, four strikeouts against the Angels. If you wrote him out for the three starts that were against weaker opponents, now is the time to officially get rid of him because he gets the Yankees at Yankee Stadium and then the Dodgers next. We can only hope that the second half looks better for Lynn, but I am still way off of that Lynn train. Lance Lynn, man. Uh, so I picked him up, right? Uh, for the start previous. Yep. Um, great. Um, and then I was like, yeah, Angels, I, I don't think, I think you could handle the Angels. And then, um, well, he didn't handle the Angels. Definitely not. <laughs> um, and the funny thing was I had Shohei Otani as well um, in, on that team. So Shohei was like, oh, I was like, great, two homers, four RBs. Who's he facing? Oh, oh shoot, Lance, Lance Lynn. Lynn. Crap. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, man, it's uh, he he's getting dropped uh, off that team. Uh, sorry, Lance. It was it was fun, but um, you're no longer uh, worthy. And then yeah, Blake Snell, man. Like every time he has a great start, you're like, wow, that was awesome. And then just disaster. And then he just blows up afterwards. Yep. So yeah, with that schedule, um, I probably am not starting him against Cores or the Rays. And I think if that's the case, like you might as well drop him. Yep. You know and. If some other manager wants to take a chance, you know, like, go ahead. But he is just not a guy who could be relied on at this point on your fantasy teams. Honestly, that's my theory, and I've stuck by that forever, is if you have to sit a pitcher in a specific matchup, why mm -hmm. do you roster him? You should yeah. be able to start your pitchers in every matchup and feel comfortable. Obviously, some are worse, and you're not going to get a perfect matchup every time out. Like, if Luis Castillo is facing the Rockies at Coors, I'm not going to bench him. Obviously, that's a rare scenario because Luis Castillo is a top five pitcher in baseball or top 10 pitcher in baseball. Right. But yeah. if my pitcher has two consecutive outings where I'm like, oh, I don't know if I should start this guy, you probably just shouldn't roster him, right? Like, mm -hmm. that's how I feel about Lynn and Snell and all these guys that have tough schedules that are just borderline rosterable. And also, a little, I guess, sneaky maneuver 
for fantasy that's kind of not utilized. It's a strategy that people will see names like Lance Lynn and Blake Snell. And even though you can't get anything for them in a trade, really, mm-hmm. if you drop them and they're doing bad, some manager that you might face in like a head-to-head league, for instance, might be like, ooh, I'll take the shot on him. And they right. might not see that Lynn has the Yankees and Dodgers next or Snell has the Cubs, Rockies, and Rays next. And they might grab him and blow up their perifs, and you might succeed from them doing that. So, yep. hey, it's like placing a grenade on the wire and letting someone else grab it, and sometimes that works. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, it's a little unfortunate, but that's the that's the strategy behind fantasy sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> well, moving on to Thursday, thanks to Seth Kuzmeyer for uh, writing the Daily Hitting Recap for that day. Uh, we're going to talk about Cattell Marte. The Diamondbacks went 2 for 4 with two doubles, two runs, an RB guy, and a walk. Uh, to me, Marte is just one of those boring players on your team that you wish was a little bit better, but you're also pretty much glad that you don't have a problem at second base or middle infield because he's there. He's been a well above average hitter this season, has some okay counting stats, nothing to write home about. He does have a decent amount of runs, so that is kind of nice. The weird thing Marte this season is that both his strikeout rate and the walk rate have decreased, despite the fact that his plate has been, hasn't changed too much, nor his approach at the plate. He is performing right where expected stats say he should be, so basically don't expect anything more from Marte, but also be glad that it doesn't get any worse. Then, moving on to Kyle Tucker of the Astros. He went 3 for 4 with two doubles as well, two runs, and a stolen base. Tucker hasn't been the power-speed combo everyone was hoping for him to be this season, but he still looks well on pace for a 2020 season, maybe even 25-25. He's still well above average in all the ratios, and has actually decreased his strikeout rate by a big margin, and increase the walk rate. The main change here is that he's just not whiffing as much. He's increased the ground ball rate by a significant amount, though, by 10%, so it's a little worrying. I was kind of hoping he'd lift the ball a little bit more, get more of those home runs, but he's still one of the better hitters in baseball right now, so I pretty much wouldn't panic on Kyle Tucker. Yeah, really no comments about Kyle Tucker. He's just a stud, and obviously he hasn't been as great as you want him to be recently, but He's been fantastic, and he's going to get better and better, so no worries on Kyle Tucker there. And then for Cattell Marte, I wanted to speak a little bit more about him because I think that if he's out there, you should all pick him up. And the reason for that is, obviously, all the stats are pretty much right where they've always been, as you mentioned. You know, his strikeout and walk rate have decreased, but his plate discipline is right there. And his baseball savant page isn't anything spectacular. He's got red here and there. His hard hit percentage isn't too great, but his whiff percentage is great. His K percentage is great. His expected batting average is really good, and his max exit velocity is very good. I think the main context here is that the Diamondbacks are a good team, like finally. And they have some good mojo around them with Corbin Carroll, Jake McCarthy coming back, Christian Walker, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. has been fantastic. So... They've really been clicking on all fronts, and Cattell Marte really found his groove. And I wanted to point out that obviously his best season was in 2019, where he had 32 homers and 10 stolen bases with a 329 batting average. And he's not going to hit 32 home runs ever again. That was the rabbit ball season, obviously. Right. But in 2018, he had 14 home runs. In 2021, he had 14 home runs. And in 2022, he had 12 home runs. Now, 2022, he only played 137 games. 2021, he only played in 90 games. 2018, he played a full season, 153 games, where he had 14 homers and stole six bases. But he's already at six stolen bases in 53 games. He's got eight home runs in 53 games already. He's also got four triples, 10 doubles, and he's batting 284. So if you're going to tell me, extrapolating these stats, that he's going to hit like 17 home runs, steal 15 bases, and bat around 280, 300, at second base, which is a pretty weak position, 
sign me up. And I feel like he's getting super, super disrespected where he's available in a lot of leagues. And I think that needs to change. I think that he is extremely, extremely viable in all fronts across fantasy leagues, no matter what size league you're in. I mean, he was on, I think, a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, a 10-game hitting streak as far as I can see from that. He might have had more. I can't really go back in the game log that quickly, but he had at least a 10-game hitting streak going into Friday's game, and I don't know, man. I see someone who can bat 280 to 300 and hit maybe 20 home runs as a ceiling and steal 15 mm-hmm. bags, and that's a fantastic player. So I think he's being slept on. Uh, yeah, I think the problem, obviously, is just the, the counting stats, but... Um... Like you mentioned, that average is really, really good. And usually when you get on base, good things happen. So, yep. yeah, that team's only that that Diamondbacks team as a whole is only getting better. You know, they're tied for first right now in the NL West. Um, they're just a really fun young team. And um, yeah, Marte could could definitely see some in, um, improvement in his numbers as the season goes on. Yeah, and 2019, like I said, his RBI was 92, and that was like the best case scenario with 32 homers. So right, you're yeah. not going to get a lot of RBI from Marte, who often bats leadoff or second for the Diamondbacks, but you're going to get a lot of runs. I wouldn't be surprised if he had 90 to 100 runs by the end of the year with Corbin Carroll and Lourdes Gurriel and Christian Walker batting behind him. Mm-hmm. So if you put the line of 280, we'll just say is the batting average, we'll say 100 runs, 18 home runs, 70 RBI, 15 stolen bases, that's a guy who should go in the first, like, seven rounds of fantasy. Yeah, I... I... Probably don't disagree with that. If you gave me like, you know, a player A, player B sort of thing. Yeah, right. probably yep. not knowing who the player is. Yeah, that, that seems like a guy that is worth taking, um, especially at second base. Yeah. So my information to you guys, pick up Cattell Marte wherever possible, because I think he is being slept on and I think he's going to be good for your fantasy teams. Yeah, he is 80% rostered, so he's pretty much gone in most leagues. But yes. Yeah. In the in the event that he is available, he should. Yeah, he should be on a roster. Absolutely. Well, moving on to pitchers with the Loose Threads uh, article from Nick Pollock. Uh, thanks for the SP Roundup, Nick. Uh, we're going to start with Kevin Gaussman of the Toronto Blue Jays going up against the Brewers. 6.2 innings, zero runs, five hits, two walks, 11 strikeouts. Um, I actually got to see Gaussman pitch in person last week, and I thought it was just so funny in like uh, all these counts where he's going up against um, a left-handed hitter. Uh, Gaussman, because he has that dangerous splitter, um, is a reverse splits pitcher. And everyone knew, you know, with with the with a count like with a two strike count, he was going to throw a splitter, and yet like he he throws it and then um, batters still swing through it, even though like everyone knows he's about to throw a pitch that's just going to drop out of the zone in a disgusting <laughs> way. Um, well, in this start, he actually added three ticks of velocity to that splitter, earned nine whips. The whip is still a touch high for a top ten pitcher. That's always been a Gaussman thing, though. Um, and this year, it's because his walk rate's gone up. Um, he's not getting as many whiffs as he's had in the past, uh, but the stuff models still love him and his sweater. You should really never bet against that. And then Max Scherzer of the Mets went up against Philly. Seven innings, one and in run, five hits, one walk, and nine strikeouts in a win. That's three straight quality starts for Scherzer. He's impressed with really good strikeout numbers as well. The fastball's been deadly. Had 15 whiffs in this game alone for the 49% CSW. The secondaries didn't do too much this game, but it didn't matter because that fastball was so good. The main thing for Max, obviously, is just hoping he stays healthy and continues this run. Just three words for both of these pitchers. Aces gonna ace. I can't can't argue with you there. (laughs) Great performances from both of them. But we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by pitcherless writer John Foley to talk about his article, What's Wrong with Emmanuel Classe? Stay tuned.
And we're back and joined by PitcherList writer John Foley to talk about his article, What's Wrong with Emmanuel Classe? John, welcome back to the show. How's everything going with you? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, things are going good. It was fun to have the season going. Oh, yeah. Big time. We love talking about baseball over here and talking about people's articles, especially yours. So we've had you on the show a lot, and this time you have an article about Emmanuel Classe. Do you want to give a little bit of a preview about what it entails? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the biggest thing is this was, you know, the Guardians closer who's been one of the best closers in baseball for the last two seasons. And all of a sudden he's blowing games, right? He's got five blown saves and taking four losses early on. I was, I was curious. I was like, what's going on here? Is there something, sometimes relievers blow up, right? That's part of it. But is there something under the hood, right? So this was a sort of a going deep kind of analysis on, you know, is the stuff still good? What's up with the process? What's that all about? And, and why is he having such a hard time? Yeah, I love that. And for people who aren't familiar with you or your work, tell us a little bit more about yourself, what you do for Pitcher List, what team you're a fan of, and how long you've been playing fantasy for. Yeah, sure thing. So uh, I love to do analysis. So that's kind of the type of writing that I do. I, I write for Pitcher List and I, I'm the going deep team. So these kinds of articles digging into, hey, that doesn't seem like what we'd expect, or there's, a, there's an interesting question. Can we figure that out? Those kinds of types of pieces are the things I love to do. Do those for pitcher list about once a month, and then I'm I'm a big Minnesota Twins fan, so I write about the Twins at, at Twinkie Town uh, almost every week. So pretty much every time they have an off day during the season, I've got an analysis piece going up about something about the Twins. Um, so yeah, big into the numbers, all the stat cast, all the data that we've got uh, available to us now. It's a it's an awesome time to be a baseball analyst, given all the stuff that's available in the public domain. That's fantastic, and you actually crushed all that information right there. So good job on you. But let's get into your article, What's Wrong with Emmanuel Classe? Before we get into his performance this year, let's talk about what made him great. With closers, oftentimes we just care about whether they get saves or not, but what made Classe so elite? Yeah, I mean, he's a... I mean, one is opportunity, right? So the way the Guardians use him is they put him in a ton of high leverage situations. They they have since they acquired him from Texas in a trade a couple of years ago. So he's getting lots of opportunities for saves. That team's usually been pretty competitive the last couple of years, so they're winning a lot of ball games. And the style that they play on that team tends to lend itself to a lot of close ball games, right? They're not a big offensive team; they're a pitching and defense and contact kind of club. So he's in there in a bunch of one-run, two-run games all the time. He's really durable, so he gets lots of opportunities. But you know, Class A's calling card, like some of the best closers in baseball history, is you know an elite, elite putter. Right. So this is a guy who throws, you know, 99, 100 mile an hour cutters, which is sort of this unbelievable thing that somebody can even do that. Right. And and that's his calling card. He throws that pitch a ton, like 70 percent of the time, two thirds of the time, most most seasons. And then he mixes in a slider every now and then to keep guys off balance. And this is against pitchers or hitters and on both sides of the plate. Right. But that is the the straw that stirs the drink for him. Um, and he just goes to it. People know it's coming and they still can't do anything with it. Yeah, he was so dominant, I feel like, once he got called up. And he took over for James Karinchek, who originally yeah. was supposed to be incredible, but Class A just really owned that role. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's so consistent, right? So part of it is that cutter with him is, you know, it's not necessarily a, a bat-missing pitch, right? The cutters, they tend to lend themselves to, to weak ground ball contact. Certainly, he strikes out his fair share of guys, right? He's got, you know, more than a strikeout per inning, which is what you want in the back of the bullpen. But he's not a, you know, a traditional, you know, blow-him-away kind of reliever who's going to be, you know, striking out 30% of the batters he faces or whatever. But he's going to be throwing strikes. He's got super low walk rates. 
He's going to get weak contact on the ground for the most part, and they're going to turn those into outs. Um, and he doesn't hurt himself, right? So elite ground ball rates, you know, in the mid-60s, he's not walking people, he's not hitting people, he doesn't give up home runs. So it's really a really safe kind of thing. Yes, he's going to allow a little bit of contact, um, but you can put him out there and he's not going to get himself in trouble and he's not going to give up that big swing that blows the game um, for the most part, right? And so so that's one of those things, lots of opportunities again, and that's what makes him so elite is he can just pound the zone with that cutter. Everybody knows it's coming and they can't they can't do anything with it. Mariano-esque. <laughs> very much. Yeah, it's very much that profile, though, with, you know, modern velocity, let's say, more than Mariano probably did. Yeah. It's It's always impressive to just look at Class A. Uh, highlights and just remember like yeah he's throwing that like uh, that cutter like just by guys and you know, the movement on it and stuff just yeah it's it's disgusting to watch <laughs> it's insane um, that somebody can make a baseball move like that at 100 miles an hour right right it's just, exactly it's crazy to and and to be able to do it you know with command is just incredible right it's like it's like shades of you know sandy alcantara is probably the only other guy that comes to mind for me who who does something maybe a little similar um with his uh, sinker, so um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's always always fun to watch. Uh, even as a Twins fan, just yeah, see him carve up the Twins sometimes. It, it sucks, but it's you, you have to appreciate the greatness. When he comes in against the Twins, you're like, all right, well, this one's over. Yeah, um. <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously, we're not just talking about Class A because he's so amazing, but he is like it's because he's struggling this season, right? You mentioned the fine blow saves um, and things like that. But the first thing that you mentioned in the article that I thought was was interesting was how his first strike rate has gone down a bit and also the velocity has gone down a little bit and that potentially the underlying issue here isn't a mechanic thing. It's the pitch clock. Could you go into a little bit more kind of detail? How is that 15 second timer now impacting his approach on the mound? Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting thing. It's one of the things that the, the guardians and, and class, they were pretty open about publicly. Right. So he had these struggles early in the season you know, last year, last two seasons, he's averaged 100 miles an hour on the cutter. And, and this year he starts out the year and in April, he was 96, 97. And you're kind of like, okay, well, well, you know, April's cold. Cleveland doesn't have the best weather a lot of times. You know, what's that about? But last year in April, he was still 99 plus, right? And so you start looking at it. And so, you know, the media is asking him about this, like, what's up? He blew a couple of saves. You know, the velocity is not the same. And he was pretty honest. He's like, I feel super rushed. Like this pitch clock, he's like, I'm worried about getting a violation. I'm worried, you know, it's messing with my routine. And he's sort of, you know, like a lot of late game relievers, not exactly a fast worker, right? So they have their routines. They're creatures of habit for sure, right? So they, you know, after every pitch, ball strike, whatever, they get their, you know, they walk around, they do their reset, they do their breaths, whatever it is he's got his routine and, and he was really open and said like my routine's messed up because of the clock like it's too fast and so mm-hmm. part of it i think was just him having to make an adjustment um you know uh tito francona their manager talked a lot about it. they they tried to do some stuff like with the catchers in terms of well, get him the ball back faster you know these kinds of things like what can they do to try to make that you know not waste extra seconds on the clock um, those sort of things. But part of it was just, I think him, Classe having to get comfortable with the, the new pace, just like everybody else. I thought it was interesting too, though. I mean, I think when the league put in the the rule about, you know, the, the pitch clock, they were, they were hoping that it was going to be potentially a tool that would help velocity come down. Right. So less stress in between uh, pitches, um, you know, and, and over the, especially over the course of a game, you know, hopefully pitchers, you know, they just don't have the stamina to continue to throw max effort. 
all the time. So I think they were hoping that it would bring velocity down. That hasn't happened at the league level, really. I mean, we're, we're averaging 94 miles an hour on, on uh, four-seam fastballs across the league, which is the highest ever again, right? We've been setting new records for velocity every year for the last decade. Um, and But, you know, individual cases, you know, it's still very well might be the case. And so perhaps that was the case with Class A. I will say, though, his velocity is back up. So for the last couple of weeks, he's been setting 99-100 again um, with the cutter. So either he's made that adjustment or just getting into the season or, or for whatever it is. But he's he's not throwing 96-97 anymore. I think that it's an adjustment period for all of the relievers at the moment. Like Kenley Jansen, for instance, was someone that we were super worried about because of the whole time it takes for him to do his whole approach and do that rocking back and forth and the glove thing. So I guess all the relievers are just kind of trying to find their footing at the moment with how to approach the pitch clock and how to get their, I guess, routine down without going over the limit. So it might be affecting that for him, like you said, but now that his velocity is back up, hopefully he's making a change to where he's got that notion. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to go about it, and he can succeed in this kind of environment. But you mentioned that Class A is now doing more poorly against lefties. What's going on this year that has resulted in that decrease in performance? The biggest thing that I found was he's falling behind them more, which I, you know, is how much is that related to the the routine and the pitch clock thing, right? So um, overall, he's throwing a lot. Uh, a fair number fewer first pitch strikes, but digging into that, it, his rate of first pitch strikes and getting ahead in the count throughout the the ball strike count uh, is about about the same against right-handed batters. For whatever reason, he's having more difficulty uh, getting ahead of lefties, and so how that relates then is well, you know, he's got this routine to reset himself, so he throws ball one, goes through his routine to try to okay get back in the count, and then if he's rushed, then maybe he's not executing that as well. And so now it's two O and those types of things. But that was the biggest thing I saw was for whatever, whatever reason he's throwing uh, behind in the count against left-handed batters a lot more than he ever has in the past. Yeah. I noticed he would just be like in a one, one count and then get a pitch clock violation, be in a two, one count, then rush and then be in a three, one count. And it really affected yeah. him. So I think, yeah. you know, questions two and three kind of tie into each other where, if he can get his motion correct with the pitch clock and get his velocity back in order, it will probably lead to being better against lefties just because he'll be able to situate himself and put himself ahead in the count rather than be behind in the count constantly and getting those violations and racking that up. Yeah. And, and, you know, part of it too is he's more cutter dependent against the lefties than he is against the righties. Right. Cause you know, he's not going to throw the slider as much, to the lefty. So it's, you know, he falls behind in the count, you know, he throws his cutter two thirds of the time in general overall anyways, but he falls behind the count and now it becomes 80% cutter. Right. And he's got to throw it over the plate. And so it's like, okay, they already know what's coming. Now they can box him up in the middle of the plate. Right. And they know that he's got to come in and he's got to throw it over. And so, you know, it's just putting himself in a, in a bad spot on those things. And, And you can see that in some of the data, you know, his, his pitch location heat maps this year, um, you know, he, he would get that cutter sort of up and in against lefties a lot more in the past. And this year it's more middle and down sort of belt high, those kind of things. Like those are just more hittable pitches. And part of it's a function of necessity in terms of he had to get in the plate. He had to get in the zone. Right. Yeah. I remember um, that during the first uh, twin series actually against Houston, this was their first series at home. So basically um, 
you know, everyone's first opportunity with the pitch clock. And I remember Luis Garcia, who, you know, had the rock the baby motion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, he was struggling a lot in that game. Like he didn't get any pitch clock violations, but he was he was basically starting his motion when it was pretty much almost double zeros on on the clock. Uh, then you saw him like get a lot better when there was a man on base because all of a sudden he's got five more seconds to to prep. But as the season's gone on, you actually see that Garcia looks a lot more comfortable with the clock now, and he's he's gotten more reps. And it's interesting actually from the perspective of a reliever, where you know they're pitching one inning, you know probably every two out of three games, right? And so they're not getting the same amount of reps necessarily that um, starters are getting day in and day out. And you might think like, okay, that's kind of that doesn't seem like that be, might be too much of an effect. But when you're messing with a guy's uh, routine that he's honed down for you know, years at this point, right. um, not having that much, you know, actual game practice, I think is, is actually kind of a, a, an underrated sort of a, a analysis piece of this whole thing, which I, I find really interesting that like, yeah, you're kind of pointing these things out. It's just like, it, it may not be that anything's necessarily wrong with him. It's just that he's still getting used to the rules and now he's finally getting used to it more and more as the season's going on. And I think, yeah, I mean, they're creatures of habit just like anything else, and it takes a little while for you to adjust to that's the new pace, that's the new normal, and it doesn't feel rushed and it doesn't feel awkward. And and by the way, I mean, this is a guy too. I mean, he's pitching in the highest leverage situations that there are, right? So he's, right. you know, Cleveland plays a ton of close games. They play a lot of extra inning games. So he's out there. Every pitch, the game outcome is going to hinge on potentially those pitches. And, you know, and he's not feeling totally comfortable. And I think that's just all part of it. And, and it sort of magnifies some of the, you know, the mistakes. I mean, that's part and parcel with being a late game reliever is, you know, you make a mistake and you might lose the game or you blow the save and everybody can see that part of it. It's different than when, you know, somebody in the fourth inning does that and everybody forgets about it later. Um, <laughs> and, and to your point, I just looked it up. He, he has two pitch clock violations this season, which okay. isn't a lot, but I mean, it's, it's not zero. Right. I must have caught the one game where it happened. I don't know if it happened twice in the same game because it felt like Maybe it, it was. I don't know. That's a good question. But I definitely saw it once where he was in a 1-1 count, I believe. Then he got a violation, and then he just, like, rushed it and threw another ball immediately. So I'll try and see if I can figure it out. I don't know. It's <laughs> a good question, though. So, you know, we talked about kind of the, the pitch clock and how that's affecting him. But um, the other thing, too, is that the Guardians have, you know, talked also publicly about how Class A is also tweaking a few things mechanically. Um, what are those things and how might it actually be helping him moving forward into the season? Yeah, I thought that was interesting too. Cause it, you know, even with the velocity taken back up, he still blew a save, uh, last week, I think it was. And so it, you know, it, things aren't totally back to normal, even though he's back throwing that. And, and by the way, I mean, part of this too, I'll also say is like, if you like the pitch modeling, pitch quality modeling stuff, whether it's, you know, RPLV or stuff plus or those kind of things, like there's been pretty much no decline uh, over his stuff, you know, mm -hmm. despite the velocity change, despite the struggles that he's had, like he's, his stuff is, is just as good as ever by, you know, those, those model inputs and things like that. But um, I thought it was interesting. They, he said uh, again to the media uh, it was last week, but he was talking about how there's some stuff in his release where he felt like his arm was getting a little bit short is the way he described it. And I'm not a mechanics expert, so I don't exactly know what that means, but it, it does show up in terms of his cutter is moving a little differently so far this year than it has in the past. Right. So um, in two ways. So it's got a little bit more horizontal break to it. So it's up over four inches of horizontal in the last 
couple, and that's actually a trend now. So it's like three years in a row that it's gotten a little bit more horizontal than it was. Um, and last year it was about three inches. This year it's about four, which is, you know, an inch isn't much, but an inch on a cutter is a pretty big deal. Um, and so it's a little bit more horizontal, but the other part of that too, is it's, it's got more vertical drop. Um, and so with gravity, so part of that is, well, maybe the less velocity too, but it's not staying, you know, that riding action, that cut ride that he wants to have on that pitch to make it stay above barrels and things like that. It's actually got a little bit more of the movement that you would sort of expect. And so with the extra horizontal and a little bit more downward angle, it's sort of more in the you know, dead zone kind of movement that we, we hear about sometimes. And and I think part of it is just the pitch is just a little bit less deceptive when it's moving the way that it is so far this year compared to when it has that little bit better vertical ride and a little bit less horizontal. And some of that I think is probably this, these mechanics and this release stuff that he's talking about. So my read on it, you, you know, like I said, I'm not a mechanics expert, but it seems like he's just getting around the cutter a little bit more, right? And that's where some of that horizontal is coming from. And that would also affect, I think, that, that backspin that he would want to, that's going to help it stay up in terms of the vertical. Um, so I think that's probably part of it when he's saying he's a little bit short is he's kind of getting around it and not really getting through it all the way at his release. Gotcha. So yeah, the, so the just basically something even as small as that is something that he's tweaking just yeah. to make that pitch just like even more well, and that's a, or kind of get back a, to where it used to be. Trying to get back, right? I mean, and that's yeah. a feel pitch, right? I mean, a cutter, it's a fastball, but it's got this, you know, little bit of manipulation and the grip's a little bit off to the side, you know, that kind of stuff to put a little right. bit of that that spin on it. That's what makes it have that cut at the end versus staying true or running to the arm side. And so it's, you know, it's a very sort of subtle kind of thing, subtle manipulation kind of thing. And I, I assume, I, I never threw a cutter, but I assume it's a probably easy enough to sort of lose the feel for that for stretches. Right. So now we have our, of course, favorite segment that we have to get through is who would you rather rest of season in a standard 12 team five by five with just saves, not saves plus holds, just saves. Who would you rather between Emmanuel Classe and these few examples? So John Foley, we'll start with you. Who would you rather rest of season between Emmanuel Classe or Jordan Romano? I go Classe still. I mean, I think because the stuff is still good. The command's still been there. He's not been walking extra badges. And he's going to get plenty of opportunity for saves. I know the Guardians aren't off to the best start, but the, that division's not very good. Um, so they're, they've got a chance to be competitive in there. Um, Romano's going to give you probably more strikeouts, um, but also more home runs and walks to that. But I, I would go Class A over Romano. John, what about you? Yeah, this was uh, kind of a funny list to come up with because, like, how do you compare, like, basically a top three closer with, you know, a bunch of other closers in, in the majors? Um, I think I would still lean Class A here just because, uh, you know, we know the history. Yes, the strikeout rate's down, but, um, you know, he... The Cleveland is a you know a pitching machine. They know how to tweak so many things, and so this feels more like a blip than an actual indication of what he's going to look like for the rest of the season. And so yeah, I think I still stick with Class A here just because he's more of a stable, uh, stable closer than Romano in my opinion. Yeah, this one's very close for me as well. And obviously, going into the season, I had Emmanuel Class A ranked higher, so I'm going to go with Class A on this one. Both are great closers, of course, and both are on teams that are going to win over probably 85 games. So I think you can't go wrong with either. But if you had to pick one, I would take Classe. Next, we have Emmanuel Classe or 
Jason Adam of the Rays. John Foley, what do you say about this one? Well, this one's interesting because I think it depends on how much you think Adams really got the closer job and he's going to be the guy. I mean, right. the Rays are sort of notorious for not giving one guy that role, although they seem to have with him. And so, I mean, part of it is the Rays are probably going to have more opportunity, right? I mean, they're better than the than the Guardians, um, and so far that's been the case. And, and Adams has been really, really good. So I, I probably – he's the one I might say – you go with here, especially because of the strikeout rate. Um, and I think he might have more opportunities in a, in a true saves league. Um, so I think I go Adam. Okay, John, what about you? Yeah, this one's interesting because Fairbanks has been on and off the IL. And he's on the IL right now, which is why Adam is even in this conversation, because he is kind of the de facto closer if that really if that role really exists for the Rays. Um, but yeah, the strikeouts are really nice here. I think if you're looking for a guy who can, you know, contribute that way as a reliever, it makes sense to go with Adam. Just more opportunities, more strikeouts. Um, I mean, he's going to have more strikeouts than, you know, if even if Class A was back to his, his old self. So I think in that sense, it makes sense to go for Adam just because I think he contributes in more categories. With the big caveat is that he might just not be in the job in two weeks. And so, you know, if the, if if it makes more sense to to stick with a guy who you know you can rely on for the rest of the season, then you go Class A. If you're just kind of looking to, um, you know, get a get a jolt in, in your in your lineup, then I'd say you go with Adam. So for me, I am going to go Emmanuel Class A because I cannot stand raise relievers at all for fantasy purposes. So I just want to be as far away from that situation as possible. So. If you're going to tell me, hey, would you rather Emmanuel Classe or Jason Adam? If I rostered Jason Adam and someone said, hey, I'll give you Emmanuel Classe for him, I will take that every single day of the week. So for that instance, I will take Emmanuel Classe over Jason Adam. Next, we have Emmanuel Classe or Paul Seawald of the Mariners. John Foley, what say you on this one? Uh, that's. I think it's Class A. I mean, I, I mean, we'll see. I mean, Munoz has been hurt, but he's supposed to be back pretty soon. And even when he... Uh, was back and you know is is Seawald really the closer uh, is a question there so I think this one's pretty easy with the I go class A. John, I I really really like Paul Seawald. Uh, his his strikeout rate numbers are great. I mean he has um, some really good stuff. But yeah, it's that situation there's is super fluid, um, and so I think just for the sake of. Like in the in the in the case of like Adam, it was more just kind of like I think he's got better stuff. Seawalt's got pretty good stuff, but um, but he more likely is not going to get as many save opportunities as Adam would on a raised team because again, raised relievers. Um, so yeah, I think I go Class A here over Seawald. And I as well go Class A over Seawald. I think Seawald's great, and I actually roster him in more leagues than I do Class A, but I just trust that Class A is going to have more saves by the end of the season from this point on than Paul Seawald will. And especially with Munoz coming back, he's great, but I think Seawald's got the lockdown closer job for that team. However, I still take Class A over him. And last but not least, a couple of Twins fans here, so I don't know how unbiased your answers are going to be, but Emmanuel Class A or Johan Duran, John Foley, what about this one, you Twins fan? I mean, this is hard for me to say because, I, I mean, I think Duran's better, but for saves purposes and for fantasy purposes, I think it's class A because partly because of the way the Twins use Duran. Um, they, they're more prone to bring him in earlier in games if that's what the le leverage dictates, those kinds of things. And so I think from a saves opportunity perspective, um, 
Class A is your better bet. I think the Guardians are going to play more close games in that way too. The Twins are sort of boom or bust. So when they win, it's they often win by more than three, and when they lose, they lose by more than three. So it just kind of, <laughs> I think, opportunity wise, you go Class A. Yeah, it's very fair, John. What about you for your unbiased opinion? Yeah, I, I think I go Class A here as well. I think partially it's also because how good the the bullpen is behind him with, I mean, Karachuk's had his issues this season for sure. Stefan's not been amazing, but class A is almost always going to be the guy in the ninth inning. Whereas Duran for the most part will be the ninth inning guy, but the twins have brought him in the eighth um, just because it's a high leverage situation. The heart of the lineup's coming up. So he has to take care of that. And because they can't really trust any of the other relievers right now, with their bullpen. So they got to go with their best stuff when the other team's best batters are coming up. So, yeah, I think I go Klotz I hear just just more opportunities. Yeah, so I am also going to choose Emmanuel Classe. So I swept Classe across the board against all of these, and that's mainly because I had Classe as my number two reliever coming into the season for Saves Leagues. Obviously, that's behind Edwin Diaz, so technically Classe was number one, but he's the best closer in baseball when it's not Edwin Diaz. So Overall, these guys, I'm going to take him. Even though we struggled a little bit, I think he's figuring it out. He's getting the pitch clock down. He's getting his velocity back. I think it's going to be fine. So I will take Class A over pretty much every option out there for saves leagues. Now, if you're talking about saves plus holds, I'd probably much rather Johan Duran, to be honest. But I think when it comes to saves only leagues, you really have to pay attention to usage too because they'll throw out Duran for two innings in a heartbeat and then he won't pitch for three or four days. And, and that that's going to happen more as the season goes on. They don't like to do that with him early in the season, but when the right. weather warms up and he's you know he's in, the, they're going to do that more. Right, and that is just not reliable for a closer when you are in, let's say, a head-to-head league. Now in roto, it probably doesn't make too much of a difference, but in a head-to-head league, if you're against somebody and Johan Duran pitches in the sixth inning for two innings and doesn't pitch for maybe the rest of the week, you're not getting any production out of him. You're not getting any saves. So. For that instance alone, I will take Class A over him. But if you're talking about in terms of who's better, I think Deron's a little bit better. But for a saves league only, Class A all the way. So that is the who would you rather section between Emmanuel Class A and a bunch of other relievers. We mainly chose Emmanuel Class A for all of them, but Jason Adam got a nod or two. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But I think Emmanuel Class A is one of the better closers in the game and one of the best bets for saves. So probably stick with him and just ride it out for the rest of the season. Hopefully he finds it and doesn't lose his job. But that was the interview with John Foley about his article, What's Wrong with Emmanuel Classe. John, thank you so much for your time. Before you go, is there anything you'd like to plug, any social medias, any anything that you would like to share with the audience? Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It was a fun conversation. I'm, I'm looking at Jason Adams' profile now, and now I'm starting to question what I said there. So <laughs> he just doesn't have that track record. His track record, you know, Class A's track record against his is pretty different. Uh, oh, pretty different. Adam, Adam sort of came out of nowhere last season. Yep. So, he, ba- he basically yeah. got fixed by the Rays. That was kind of just Which, the I mean, they tend to do that, right? But yeah. they, also are ten- they also tend to be quick to move on when they don't feel like that's going to work anymore, too. So yep. he could be a pumpkin pretty fast. Who knows? Uh, on that but anyways uh thanks for having me guys really fun uh yeah i'm on twitter uh, john foley 21 uh post all the stuff there check us out uh, and we'll keep going let's it's been fun thanks now let's move into streamers for this upcoming week john who's on the docket this time all right so i got pictures on monday wednesday and friday starting with braxton garrett on monday going up against the royals uh, he's just coming off an impressive outing against the Padres. He pitched 5.1 innings, giving up only two hits and one earned run, struck out seven as well. Again, as we mentioned, the Royals are one of the most inept offenses in the league right now, and Garrett should be able to dominate here. 
Ronzi Contreras on Wednesday goes up against Oakland. Uh, Contreras has struggled mightily this year with career worse in his short career in ERA, whip, strikeout percentage, and walkout percentage. Uh, there have been some nervousness that the Pirates are actually going to move him to the bullpen, and he did like pitch two innings in a game like last week, but he did start today, Friday, against the Cardinals. Not a particularly pretty start, though. He went four innings with five run runs. He did, however, get six strikeouts, so the stuff is still there. Assuming he stays up, I'd say Oakland's offense is a lot worse than the Cardinals, and he might be worth a sneaky pickup. JP France uh, goes up against Cleveland on Friday. He's shown some great striker potential with a 32.4% CSW. The main issue, main issue is that he just gives up a lot of homers with a two home run per nine rate. That is not very good. However, Cleveland's offense uh, can't buy a hit right now, and assuming he gets the run support he needs from the Astros, this outing could easily be a win with good strikeout numbers. The only worry here, besides giving up more homers, is that the whip also isn't that great, so just make sure your ratios aren't a good spot before starting France. For all three of these pitchers, with the exception of France, they are below 20% rostered on Yahoo and ESPN, and JB France is 25% rostered on ESPN, so all three of these guys should be available to stream this week. Um, and if you need someone, I would say I'd probably go with France, Garrett, and then Contreras. Um, but all these guys are going up against really bad offenses and could turn in really solid starts. So I'm going to take it one step further and just say to roster Braxton Garrett. Now, as a streamer recommendation, I love it, but I think he should just be rostered. And here's a little bit of information from Frank Stample on Twitter, which is at Roto Frank. He said, Braxton Garrett's last five starts since getting rocked by the Braves, he's had a 2.67 ERA, 0.96 whip, 32 strikeouts over 27 innings pitched with a 15% swinging strike rate. That sounds like an elite pitcher to me. Also, Lance Brozdowski at Lance Broz on Twitter had a lot of things nice to say about Braxton Garrett as well. So I think that he's just someone you should roster at this very point in time. So if you pick him up for this matchup and he dominates the Royals, just hold on to him because... I think he's a fantastic pitcher that's now getting whiffs and he's got great command. Just roster Braxton Garrett. He's probably my number one pick in this one. I would say Garrett, then France, then Contreras. Contreras just had a rough outing against the Cardinals, but against Oakland, things should be A-OK. And then JP France against the Guardians. The Guardians, like we said, have been terrible. These are just great lineups to piece apart. The Royals, the Athletics, the Guardians, the Pirates. These teams are not good. They're not hitting well, and you should just take advantage of them. And these three pitchers all can get the job done. So I love these streamer recommendations, and I would just say above and beyond, go and roster Braxton Garrett. If he's under 20% rostered in your leagues, grab him. He's great. He's been better than probably half the pitchers on your staff. Just <laughs> grab him right now and hold on to him. Yeah, it, and like a lot of people don't like taking like poor Miami pitchers because you you know lose the chance of a win. But Garrett, yeah, that, that ERA for sure gives at least Miami a, a chance to win most games. So, um, yeah, definitely definitely look at him. I think with France, like, he is kind of more rostered more in leagues, and I think my issue with him is just that ERA is really high because um, that home run rate is just really terrible. Yep. Um, but PLV loves JP France. PLV also really likes Braxton Garrett as well. Um, and so, yeah, both those guys – Good pitchers um, who are both probably worth like a keeping on your teams for a while. Yep, I completely agree. And great suggestions there, John. But that wraps up the podcast this week. Before you go, please 
Follow us on Twitter at ThisWeekPL, and also send us your comments and questions to our email at ThisWeekPLPod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from more of you and answer some questions and do a mailbag pod one day, so please send in questions, comments, concerns, whatever you want about fantasy baseball. We will answer it. You can find John on Twitter at TheJohnKa, that's T-H-E-J-O-H-N-K-E, and myself on Twitter at Regicidal, that's R-E-G-I-C-I-D-A-L. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the Pitcher List podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts on. And if you could, please leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the show. It helps us out greatly. And lastly, sign up for Pitcher List Plus. By doing so, you can join us in the Pitcher List Discord and get advice from all of the fantasy experts and writers over there. But that's all for this week. We will be back next week with another episode of This Week in Fantasy Baseball. For John, I'm Lee, and we'll see you in the next one. Later, everyone. Later, everyone.